Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Welcome back to Point of Origin, the podcast about the world of food from around the world. I'm your host, Stephen Satterfield. Our next story is about monomen, wild rice harvested by the Anishinaabe tribes of the Great Lakes. I first encountered this story on Civil Eats, so I need to go ahead and shout them out, but it was the headline that got my attention. Wild rice is feeding indigenous communities in Detroit and beyond. So I wanted to talk to the woman who literally wrote the book on wild rice in indigenous communities from this area. And so we did just that. And soon you'll hear from Barb Barton, who is the author of The Story of Monomen, Wild Rice in Michigan. We'll also talk to Wasan Dillard, an award-winning natural fiber weaver and basket maker. She's also a teacher of Anishinaabewan and a culture bearer. She is on the tribe's Natural Resources Commission and is also crucially involved in the Monoman restoration and cultural preservation. We'll also hear from Shiloh Maples, Program Director for the American Indian Health and Family Services in Detroit. Shiloh is also a Program Manager for Food and Sovereignty Wellness Initiatives. Her work in the tribal community includes promoting traditional native foods for a healthy diet and also traditional dance as a means of physical activity. Environmental, this is Barb. Hi, Barb. This is Stephen Satterfield from Whetstone. Uh, thanks for joining us, Barb. Oh, you're welcome, Stephen. I'm really happy to be with you today. So, I was fascinated. I came across your work through an article from Civil Eats, which was entitled Wild Rice is Feeding Indigenous Communities in Detroit and Beyond. And even in that headline alone, there's so many things that I would like to unpack. But starting with the indigenous communities in Detroit, because I think, you know, one of the prevailing narratives uh, that people have about Detroit is urbanism and blight and predominantly African-American. And there seems to have been sort of a, a cultural erasure of indigenous communities in that area. And so I was wondering if you could speak to that at all, um, if you agree or not. And if so, just kind of what is the current status with these communities in the Detroit area? That's a really great observation. Uh, we have 12 federally recognized tribes in Michigan, and there are 
no federally recognized tribes in the Detroit area. Over the centuries, there were different tribes who had occupied the region, but right now, they're mostly communities that are associated with the American Indian Health Center, and that seems to be a place where they are able to come together and do cultural practices, learn about food traditions. You know, it's the, it's the displacement of the people. They were put on reservations, and a lot of them moved away from the lands that they had traditionally lived on. Mm-hmm. And the Detroit area is one of those where people were moved off. And how did you get into writing about these communities? I got involved in writing about Anishinaabek culture with the book because that was my introduction to wild rice or Minoman. It's very much tied to their culture here based on a migration story. And I was able to help get a grant to fund a traditional rice camp back in 2008 at the Lockheed Desert tribe in the western upper peninsula of Michigan. And the person who I worked with was Roger Labin, and he's a tribal member there. And he taught me all about wild rice from the traditional perspective. And I've been an endangered species biologist most of my career. I never knew that wild rice grew in Michigan, which was kind of surprising to me. So that kind of sparked my interest in learning more about the ecology and distribution of rice, but it also set me on a path of learning a lot about the cultural teachings and traditions associated with it and providing support and assistance for Roger for his work and trying to bring those traditions back to the tribes here. So you really kind of came to this work more from the point of view as a preservationist and then it brought you into this much larger and deeper world around rice and tribal communities. Is that right? Yes, yes. And this word, manumen, mm-hmm. what does it mean exactly? It's a word in the language of the Native people here, which is called Anishinaabemowin. And it means good berry. Manal means good. And men means berry. It used to describe the wild rice as a good berry. It's a very important food culturally because of the migration story. As it was told to me by tribal elders hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the people of the Anishinaabe, which would be the Ojibwe, Potawatomi, and Odawa, lived in what's now northeastern United States and then a little bit into Canada and were visited by several prophets. And they were given prophecies, two of which told them that people with white faces were going to be coming across the ocean and that they needed to leave their homeland and travel westward to the place where the food grows upon the water. And if they didn't, they would be destroyed. So they followed those prophecies and it took a few hundred years, but they made their way down the St. Lawrence River and then into the Great Lakes region where they found wild rice. They're very culturally tied to that grain. It's used a lot in traditional gatherings, such as feasts. It's used in funerals. It's been a staple of their diet since they've been here. Also, it's used as medicine as well. And is it a particular variety of rice? Uh, No, it's actually, there's two species of wild rice that grow in the Great Lakes area. One is lake rice, Zizania palustris, and the other is river rice, Zizania aquatica. But you can find the lake rice and the river rice in the Great Lakes region, across the eastern United States, even down into the Gulf. But it's the hotbed of it is, is in the Great Lakes area. You know, from a preservationist point of view, obviously in talking about indigenous communities, there will be presumably some inherent understanding around a loss of culture or some kind of physical displacement. But from a preservationist view from the rice, what are the biggest threats and challenges to the proliferation of these river and lake rices? That's a a really great question, and it requires one to step back and look at the historical impact that happened here. Michigan, believe it or not, at one time had a lot of wild rice 
it's not really known for wild rice or people don't generally think of it as a wild rice state. But we actually had very large wild rice beds, thousands of acres in size. And historically, we started experiencing losses in the 1800s. And probably by the mid-1900s, most of the beds that were going to be lost were lost. And that was due to things like the logging era. We had a malaria outbreak in the 1800s, which resulted in a lot of draining of marshlands because they believed that the malaria was tied directly to marshland. Hmm. And we lost a lot of wetlands and marshes because of draining. It was over three miles long, and it was completely drained to turn it into a muck farm. And, of course, the rice disappeared with it. And at the mouth of all these rivers, particularly Lake Huron and Lake Erie, there were lots of wild rice beds at the mouth. And the Army Corps of Engineers came in the 1830s. They started doing a lot of channelization and dredging to facilitate shipping to go up the rivers. What we're looking at today in terms of threats, and the first thing is people don't know about rice. And when you don't have any education or information about it, then you may have opinions about it that aren't correct. So oftentimes if there's a, a lake that might have rice growing on it, it can get pretty prolific if it's well established. People will look at it as a weed and it impedes their open water boating. And so they'll want to put in chemicals to remove it or put in machines to cut it down. There are some animals that make conservation efforts challenging at times. So, for instance, carp, which is a non-native species here, they're very, very active on the bottom, and they churn up a lot of sediment, which the seeds of rice are down in the sediment in the wintertime. You know, they fall from the plant in the fall. They'll dislodge new shoots that might be coming up. They like to eat wild rice seeds as well. What an unbelievable slew of challenges for the sustainability of this rice and dating back to the onset of industrialization. It was very heartbreaking when I was starting to write the book and doing a lot of research. I was reading, you know, the surveyor's notes. I was reading a lot of the early European explorers' written accounts of what the land looked like. And then going through and looking at maps you know, like the earliest maps up through today. And to see what happened to the land visually with the maps, you know, where you have this wild area with no towns, no roads, nothing. And within 50 years during the logging era, they cut down almost every tree. And seeing the devastation that happened to the rice and and all beings that live in the rice beds, it was, it was heartbreaking. So is your motivation now kind of more from this environmental perspective? Is it about introducing rice back into the landscape for environmental outcomes? Or is this actually about a a food source? I don't really separate those two. I try to remember that we are part of the environment. The conservation and restoration of wild rice, to me, is trying to bring back into balance the landscape, because it was a very important part of Michigan's landscape at one time. All of those things are tied together, but I think my biggest driver is, is really to help make sure that this culture doesn't disappear, this this tradition of rice harvesting doesn't disappear. And if you don't have the rice beds to go ricing in, you're going to lose that, which happened to some of the tribes here. And a lot of the Native people will tell you that the rice wants to be harvested. It needs the people as much as the people need it. That is uh, very much in keeping with a relationship to nature before industrialization, no doubt. Can you explain to us what the rice harvest process is like? Basically, you have a couple of people go out into a uh, rice bed in a canoe. This is going to be your knot when you get done. That loop is actually going to be your knot. One person is what we call the polar, 
and the other person is the knocker. And the person uh, who is the puller stands up in the canoe and uses a long push pole to propel the boat through the rice bag. Mm -hmm. The reason that you use a pole is so that uh, you don't damage the plants. The plants, when they produce the ripe grains of rice, uh, those grains all ripen at different times on the same plant. So that's why the harvest will go on for two or three weeks or sometimes longer. If you were to damage one of the plants, you would shorten harvest season. And also you want the rice to be able to reproduce itself. It is a grass, so it's an annual plant. It has to reseed every year. But that person in the back of the canoe will stand up. The person in the front of the canoe spins around so they're facing the polar, and they use two cedar sticks that are around three feet long or so. Almost looks like the end of a pool stick. And they reach over, and they'll pull some rice plants over the canoe, and then they knock on that stick with the other stick, which is where the term knockers come from. And that vibration will knock the grains of rice that are ripe into the bottom of the canoe. And when you start this at home, what I would do is probably go in on a tarp in case you, until you start getting used to it. And it's just the most wonderful sound. It's, it's almost like rain falling when you're in the peak of the, of the harvest. And then they'll switch to the other hand, and it's almost like seeing someone do the backstroke, but you're pulling rice plants over the boat every time. And so you'll move through that rice bed. You go down and you'll do a few passes. On a good day, if you're out for a couple of hours, you could get 65, 70 pounds of unprocessed rice. And then you take that rice back to shore and at the camps that we used to hold up north, you would lay it out on tarps to dry in the sun for a few days, stirring it up. Because the whole goal is you have to get to the seed that's inside of a hull. So you want to get that hull dried up as much as possible. And after you've got it air dried pretty well, then you go through a step called parching. And that involves placing the dried rice into a tub that's over a fire and stirring it. And so depending how hot your fire is, it could take 10 to 15 minutes or so. And what you're trying to do there is, again, dry that hull up and get it to pull away from the grain and then also to dry the grain because you're going to be storing your rice, you know, for a year or so. Mm -hmm. So when you get that part done, then you have to remove the hull. The traditional way is to dance on the rice. So a bowl-shaped hole is dug into the ground making sure there's no stone, any tiny little thing. You don't want any stone. It has to be perfectly smooth. And then you lay a covering over it like a tarp, a deer hide, canvas, whatever you have available, and find something to brace yourself. Oftentimes it'll be two poles tied to a tree or sometimes people hold on to a chair. But you put on a pair of rising moccasins that are used exclusively for dancing on the rice. And you step into that pit and you start doing what kind of looks like the twist. Where your feet, the motion of your feet are going back and forth on the balls of your feet. So that motion rubs the hulls off of the grain. It's a workout, let me tell you, it's a workout. So once you get that done, then you have to winnow it so that oftentimes the tribal people use birch bark baskets. They're kind of like a flat tray called a winnowing basket. So you winnow, winnow, winnow until you can get a nice tray full of really beautiful wild rice. And it's pretty much like any other wild food. And I'm always kind of preaching about this to people. I'm a lifetime wild foods gatherer. And... You know, the way I view wild foods is that they're a gift from creator or whoever you believe in. If you believe in anything, they're a gift from the earth to us to provide us with nutrition to keep us alive. And that's very different 
banana cornfield or a soybeans field or even a garden, there's not the density or numbers or volume when you're looking at wild foods mm-hmm. as there are in monocultures or monocrops. But for the most part, at least in Michigan, it's not really a commodity. And I'm very grateful for that because sure. once you start interjecting money into the picture, I feel that rice will be threatened. Yeah. Great advice, even more broadly speaking, around advocacy and solidarity. So thanks for breaking mm-hmm. that down for us. Yes. This has been a great chat with Barbara Barton author of Monomen, The Story of Wild Rice in Michigan. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us on Point of Origin. Oh, thank you, Stephen. I've had a wonderful visit with you. As have I. Thanks. I hope to talk to you again soon. All right. All right. Take care. Obviously, you are the keeper of many important tribal traditions. Can you say more about where you're from and your upbringing and some of the formative ancestors who've shared this knowledge with you? My native name is Wasan, and my legal name is Renee Dillard. And I was born in the Washington area, the Grand Rapids area, and the at the center of the Met, of the Lower Peninsula. My grandfather come from Goodhart. My grandmother came from Northport, which are both Odawak territories, or in English, Odawa. And my father raised us down towards Grand Rapids-Granville area. And then recently, like in the last, I don't know, 12 years or so, I came home and I live in tribal housing now and I've been a natural fiber weaver all my life, so that might not make a lot of sense to a lot of people that don't understand what I'm doing, but it's mostly about keeping connected with Shkakamakwa or our mother, the earth, and keeping that relationship and that bond very close. And so I spent a lot of time in wilderness areas, checking on the plants, harvesting the plants, praying and meditating with the plants, and acknowledging their presence and their importance, and then whenever possible bringing them home and only in a prayerful and careful, respectful way, and weaving them into cultural items for our community to once again enjoy. Maybe around six years ago, when we first harvested a very small portion of manolmen, or wild rice, from one of the lakes that we've reseeded, and it was just a joyous, wonderful event because in most recent times, no one can remember when we've been able to do that within the Little Trevor's Bay Band territory. We've been reseeding the area first primarily for the birds Mm -hmm. to put the rice back to where it once was. Hopefully another outcome would be that the rice will take hold once again in the lakes where we've put it because of tourism. Mm-hmm. And the resort people that live up here, they don't really appreciate the rice the way the indigenous people always have. So they figure it's bothersome on the lake. What kind of tourism are you referring to? I live in northern Michigan, about 30 miles from the Mackinac Bridge. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people have their summer homes and resorts here. And people come here to camp and fish and enjoy what Michigan has to offer up here and some wilderness areas and beautiful areas. So, yeah, a lot of people come up here and enjoy the state parks and all of that. And they really don't 
want the rice tangling up their motor. Mm. So that kind of causes a a situation, and it always has. Well, as you know, Michigan has a lot of water and a lot of fresh water and beautiful, pristine lakes, and so we're looking for the less popular known not-resort areas mm-hmm. and been reseeding the rice there for 15-plus years. So we've been going to both uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin and getting rice and then hurrying back here because it's rather delicate in that stage to reseed and getting it back here and reseeding in these areas out here. It's been a long, long struggle, and we do have a couple of lakes that have taken hold. Uh, The rice has once again been established there, but not to the point where we can go and harvest once again. It's mostly for the wild birds at this point, but we go out and sing to it and pray with it and acknowledge it and check on it and sort of like you do a a newborn, you know what I mean? Of course, yeah. And so here in tribal housing, we created a Manoman processing event where we were singing to the rice, dancing on the rice. We made a little video about it. I'm April Lindelof. I'm the director of the Center for Native American Studies at Northern Michigan University. And we're cleaning rice right now, which is... And the youth came out and the elders came out and this went on for like two weeks. So we were dancing the rice and scorching the rice, which is part of the process of getting the kamash for the husk off it. And then winnowing the rice and reteaching, relearning, and reestablishing that connection with our manolmen. And with that particular manolmen, the women in the community here put together a dish of cooked rice, and we brought it ceremoniously to our tribal council. This is all grassroots effort. It wasn't like a program behind it. And then we fed it to them. We all brought wooden bowls and spoons. And it was kind of a curious thing in a contemporary way inside council chambers because they were they were going, wow, this is great. What do you want? Do you want money? What do you want? You know, we don't understand why you're doing this. And we had to explain to them, we don't want anything from you. We, we want the rice to be part of you. And we had mixed what rice that we had harvested from the lake within our territory with rice from outside our territory and we mixed it all together and created this dish so that the rice is now part of you, our decision makers, to help guide this community into understanding and find the importance in the restoration that we're doing. And since then, it has been extremely productive. People are making ricing sticks and push poles, and it's really a a beautiful, rhythmic, wonderful feeling to be in the rice again, making the motions that our ancestors all once enjoyed regularly. And so we wanted to help our tribal council who will help make legislation and and decisions for our community, we needed that rice to be part of them, to help guide them. Whether they really understood that or not, it didn't matter. The rice knew what it had to do, and it became part of their bodies. It helped create a stronger bond between them and the earth and all of these beautiful creations that the Creator gives us through our mother. Mm-hmm. And so a lot due to Barton's effort and her passion for the rice and, and really understanding that connection. As a non-Native woman, you know, you don't have to be Native to understand and appreciate the beauty of what creation has to offer us. And like a pebble in the pond kind of effect, the ripples will be felt for generations. And that's what we're, we're out doing. And Barb's book is absolutely, I mean, you've seen what she's done. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's really brought this to the forefront and help people understand exactly how important rice is, not only to the indigenous people, but to the balance of our water, 
and we know the plants that live there and we know as indigenous people that there's sacred beings inside of there and some of those are those water protectors such as the plant like rice and cattails and bulrush which I I weave and make things out of mm-hmm. those are our first water protectors and they cleanse and it's just a beautiful cycle when you people take the time to quiet down the white noise in their head you know of daily life and bills that need to be paid and jobs that have to be done and deadlines that have to be made sometimes it's good to I think they say slow down and smell the roses. Take the time to notice the beauty of Little Traverse Bay and the inland lakes where our ancestors took refuge in the winter and understand that the plants that were once there aren't there as much anymore. There's invasive species and all of these things going on, but to slow down and to notice just creator's creation and that mm-hmm. kind of solidifies everything that that native people understand within their own blood and memory mm-hmm. and what when did you personally come into the awareness of the monoman practice in your in your ancestry well we've always had monoman in ceremony when we have feasts um, Minoman is a crucial part, along with, of course, the Three Sisters, corn, beans, and squash, and any kind of wild meat or fish. Those kinds of foods are extremely important because when we have those foods there, then we also make offerings to the pastaways, the ones that have come before us and have since left this world, and so we feed them ceremoniously, and Minoman needs to be a really important part of that. So we've been getting Minoman, but not from our own area, from outside the areas, wherever it's possible. I also became aware, because I was working a lot, teaching weaving to the Wisconsin tribe, and I noticed that they all still had Minoman within their area, and they carried with them some of the old traditions, and so I was asking about the rice chiefs and the grandmothers that sing songs through prayer open up the lakes, so to speak, and the rice chief announces the date that Minoman harvesting can begin safely for the plant. So there's a whole traditional system that's still intact over in Wisconsin, and I started to ask about that here at Little Travers, you know, what traditions are are happening, and how are you planting the rice? And, you know, our guys were were going through all the scientific motions. And they said, well, maybe we need to sing and pray for that rice as well. And so that's when all of those kinds of efforts on a spiritual level began happening so that we could let that rice know how much we love and appreciate it. And it's needed here in this area and we need to bring it back. And today in 2019, the rice has answered the call. There's enough rice for us to continue to have ceremony with it. It's not part of our winter diet. There's not enough of it right now, but I'm hopeful, pretty optimistic, but at least we have rice that's harvested from our area that we can continue to have ceremony with. Wow. Well, thank you so much, uh, Wasan, for sharing that. I really, really appreciate it. So grateful for the restoration uh, and preservation work that you're engaged in. And I wish you and all of your elders and community continued luck and success with the Monoman project. It's really incredible. So thanks for taking time, too. I know this wasn't on your agenda for this morning, but I really appreciate you talking to me. Well, I hope it helps you understand about what's going on and how important allies like Barb Barton really are to our community. Truly, truly special woman who's gone way out of her way to make sure that indigenous knowledge is recognized. And for that, I'm, I'm very proud to call her my friend. And I hope that this podcast can play 
a small part in helping to amplify your extremely important and sacred work. Thank you. I think that any word that goes out that doesn't focus primarily on Native people just being a casino. I've gone into the universities and schools and have done in-services for staff that work with Native people in a lot of different areas, and I usually do a little pre- and post-test to find out where their knowledge base about the Indigenous people in their area, what their knowledge base is, and the number one answer when I ask them what are three things that Native people have contributed to your community, to the non-Native community, the number one answer has always been casino. Ugh, heartbreaking. That's what people see us as, is a casino. And it's like, man, we're so much more than that. The food that we eat on the world's table today, a lot of that comes from Indigenous people right here. So I'm like, we're just so much more than a casino. But a lot of people don't know that because we, we haven't gotten the word out. So I'm sure your, your efforts will help reach some of, those, some of those people so that they understand better about the indigenous. We'll do the best we can. And I, again, thank you for your time and hope to be in touch with you over the course of, of your continued work. Okay. Well, you have a good day. Thanks, Wasson. You too. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You've reached American Indian Health and Family Services. Please hold for the operator. American Indian Health, how can I help you? Hi, uh, is Shiloh available, please? May I ask who's calling? Uh, yes, this is Stephen Satterfield from Whetstone Magazine. Hold on a moment. Welcome back to Point of Origin. Our next guest is Shiloh Maples. She is the Program Manager for Food Sovereignty and Wellness Initiatives at the American Indian Health and Family Services. Shiloh, thank you so much for joining us today on Point of Origin. Thank you for having me. I came across your work recently through an article on Civil Eats, and we've been talking about Monoman here on Point of Origin, but I was really interested in your work in particular because you're working on food sovereignty in the city of Detroit, which is obviously both culturally and socially much different than a lot of the indigenous communities who were working in Traverse City. I wondered if you could just first give us some grounding context about what food sovereignty is. 
and also what led you into this work? Yeah, so for me, you know, food sovereignty is really about the right of people to have healthy and culturally appropriate food and for them to be able to decide the methods that that food is grown and how they really define and relate to their food system. For a really long time, Indigenous people have been dispossessed of our homelands, separated from traditional food systems, disenfranchised from decision-making processes that impact our communities. And for a long time, our practices, our traditional practices have been illegal. So many of them were illegal until 1978 when the American Indian Religious Freedom Act was passed. And so really just being able to live our lives as Indigenous people is very much tied to these land-based practices and our foodways. And so food sovereignty is about reclaiming all of that, Mm. reclaiming our culture and identity and right just to live our lives as indigenous people can you give an example of some of the agricultural uh, ways of life that were once illegal well for one just you know indigenous people being moved onto reservation lands and there were periods of time where it was even illegal for indigenous people to leave those reservations and so they lost access to their hunting fishing and foraging lands lands that they're spiritually our teachings make us responsible for looking after and stewarding and places that have really deep significance to our cultures. So it was even illegal for us to access them at certain periods of time, but also ceremonial feasts, our language that's very tied into land and food, gift-giving practices that often incorporated foods were made illegal after different periods of time, but especially during like the late 1800s until the 1970s, many of them were illegal. And your work in food sovereignty, is it based on like community practices? Is it based on advocacy? How do you actually manifest that work? The program that I manage is called Sacred Roots, and we got started about five years ago We had received a grant from the Centers for Disease Control to address the major causes of chronic illness in Indian country, one of them being the inaccessibility of healthy traditional foods. And so after different community assessments and town hall meetings and this really participatory community engagement process, we came up with the strategies or what later became our program. In those initial conversations, community members said that they wanted better access to traditional foods, support growing those foods and processing them. And they really cared a lot about the ethics of how their food was grown and where it came from and that tradition and culture remained being a part of those things. And so we established what we called the Food Sovereignty Alliance, which is really the decision-making body over our project and our work here and the staff team is really just facilitators of that and then community members come and they are telling us what their priorities are and where we can support them in being more food sovereign in the city you know it looks really different when you don't have a land base or legal autonomy like some of our tribal relatives do they had to figure out what food sovereignty looked for themselves can you explain what some of the nuances are for different indigenous communities who may or may not be land-based? I guess some of the both challenges and opportunities here in the urban landscape is one, like I said, not having that land base that a tribal community would. And we've been trying to use public land and support people growing at home as well. But then there's also this legal autonomy. So in a tribal community, you would go through tribal council or other decision-making bodies to get approval for different projects. But in the city, I mean, we have the Food Policy Council, we have City Council, all these different departments. You have to get permission to try to start some type of land-based initiative. And it's a whole completely different way of approaching the work when you don't have access to land or any legal right to be doing the work or to land. But I think one real opportunity or real strength that our community has going for it is that there is a huge food sovereignty movement already happening in the general community throughout Detroit. 
a huge urban agricultural community that's really supportive and connected with one another. And so we just kind of bring a different facet to that movement that's already happening. And Shiloh, how did you get into this work? Oh man, it's been a lifetime in the making. So, you know, on my maternal side of the family, because of the historical trauma in Native communities, I'm actually the first generation in over 100 years to be raised by their parents. Mm -hmm. So my mom, my grandma, and my great-grandparents were all raised outside of their family and outside of the culture. And so it's been a 33-year process of me coming home. You know, when I was in college, I would start asking myself some really deep questions about what does it mean to be an Indigenous person of the Great Lakes? And as I started searching for those answers, it eventually led me to food. And I really saw the potential that food and food systems work had for healing for communities and for individuals. And I just, it's been so powerful for myself and now to be part of that healing process for other people in our community is just amazing. And, you know, I feel like it's where I'm supposed to be and doing this work. Wow. Yeah, it is pretty unequivocally the most powerful organizing tool that we have because it is the only true shared experience that we all have. So I applaud you for not only making that connection, but living in that. I wonder what role policy and perception plays into the work that you're doing. And by that, I mean, oftentimes in these marginalized communities, we see heavily industrialized foods that have been subsidized that upend and displace native and traditional diets. And so I wonder like, what your feelings are about both policies enacted and also policies that you all might be trying to have enacted to better support your food sovereignty work. There are so many policies and you know decisions that are made that impact our food system that everyday people are often left out of those conversations. And especially communities of color and uh, low-income communities. And it's definitely a conversation that's being had in many different spaces throughout Detroit. You know, I'm really privileged to sit on the Detroit Food Policy Council. You know, it really provides me an opportunity to amplify the needs or the concerns of the indigenous community and the community that we serve. You know, there are some policies that are under works right now being revised. We recently, as a city, revised our urban agriculture ordinance, which changes the context of how people are able to grow food in the city and where and how. They're also in the process of revising land-based projects uh, process of getting permits or the purchasing of land because the process hasn't been really clear in the past and there's all this vacant land, but there's a lot of community concern to make sure that whatever process comes out of this new policy is really fair to community members and community organizations because there are a lot of developers coming into Detroit and scooping up land and at this really below market value. Mm -hmm. And then community groups or individuals are trying to purchase similar pieces of land and have to pay market value. And that's not fair for people that are, you know, trying to provide basic sustenance to their family and community. And so it's, you know, it's bringing up concerns like that during the policy process that the Food Policy Council really tries to uplift and tries to work to make sure that those decisions that are made are equitable. And really, that's what food justice and food sovereignty are really about, is making sure that, you know, everyday people have a voice in that process and defining their food system and what that looks like. You know, but there there are so many different ways that policy can both prohibit or enable people's access to traditional or cultural foods. Mm -hmm. And it would seem that you all have taken the right approach in terms of policy, which is to take care of your own backyard first and foremost, and hopefully that can become a model that other cities can follow. I hope so. You know, Detroit's 
pretty, I think our good food community, our movement is really pretty special. Oh, like yeah. I was saying earlier, it's very connected. We have amazing things happening all across the city. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, our food policy council was started by the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network years ago. And it's not very often that you find a city food policy council that was started by a community group. Usually they're, you know, initiative that starts within city government. Mm -hmm. This was really started by the people. And I think that's pretty awesome. Definitely. So I want to continue to push you on this because I I think it's really interesting and important. But I want to ask you around this matter of perception Mm -hmm. because there is so much learning and teaching that you're engaged in, but Mm -hmm. a a part of the learning and teaching is also unlearning. Mm -hmm. And so what has that been like for the people that you are trying to serve? You know, when we first started this work about five years ago, I noticed that a lot of our community members really look to staff and our organization to make the decisions for them and for us to set the agenda. And that's not at all what it was about. And I had to really emphasize that to them, that this belongs to them and to really enjoy the benefits of what this could become. They have to take on some ownership and responsibility and like really voice their concerns and become active participants and the work and in the process. And so over time, you know, we've really seen people, I think, change the way that they see themselves. They've gone from being kind of just service recipients that might get SNAP benefits or visit a food pantry. And some people have really transformed into these active change agents. They see that they have value to offer to the work and to their community members, skills that they can share. They want to take on leadership roles. And that's just such a a powerful thing, too, for uh, people that have been really disenfranchised for so long to start seeing themselves as active change agents. And have you been involved in the Monoman project? Not a whole lot. I would like to get more involved. You know, it's really unfortunate, though, that in the Detroit area, our waterways are really poor quality. And so the rice won't grow in a lot of places anymore. And it's really not safe. So we have to have those relationships with our tribal partners and people outside the city to really engage in that part of the work. And I saw that you were uh, lecturing sometimes in Ypsilanti. Yeah. There is a farmer there named Melvin Parsons. I know Melvin. You know Melvin? Mm Mm-hmm. He's fantastic. What a cool dude. I love Melvin. But anytime I see someone's in Ypsilanti, I have to shout out We the People's Growers Association. Check Melvin out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's awesome. And that's a a good prompt for us as well. I'm really interested how people who are listening to this can be more involved in supporting food sovereignty in indigenous communities wherever they live. One thing for sure is just get really acquainted with your local plants and having that really intimate or close relationship with your local environment is very important and learning to live seasonally and hyper locally is really important to this work Mm -hmm. but also supporting tribal communities when they a lot of them have tribally produced goods such as hand harvested and processed wild rice, maple syrup, different seeds, and some of them are selling produce and really supporting their economies. So when you want wild rice or maple syrup, buy from one of those communities because it helps support their local economy. And it also helps to create sustainability for jobs that are more based in traditional lifestyles and help people preserve those life ways that are typically, you know, those people also have that ecological knowledge that really allows them to do this food work more sustainably. And so, you know, it's kind of works out for everyone. People get ethical food and you get to support someone's way of life. You know, I think there's also some really awesome work that I don't know if you're familiar with the sous chef. Yeah, Sean Sherman. Yeah, out of the Twin Cities Mm -hmm. um, is doing some really awesome work and in the process of starting a nonprofit in the Indigenous Food Lab that's really going to serve as a training center and a support to Indigenous communities everywhere. 
and their food system work. I'm really excited to see what comes out of that. Absolutely. Yeah, he's been amazing what he's been able to do for getting people in the food media to really start to finally pay attention to indigenous foods. That actually reminds me, I have a, a somewhat random question for you around language. In the course of this conversation alone, I believe that we have used the words Indian, native, indigenous. Mm-hmm. Obviously, language is important and we want to be mindful of it. Is there in your mind, a consensus or an appropriate way to talk about these communities? I don't think that there's consensus <laughs> in I think maybe indigenous communities. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, and I think a lot of the different terms that are often used, how people identify, are very generationally based, mm-hmm. depending on what was being used in the kind of the political climate of their time. Mm-hmm. Like my grandma's generation really uses Indian. When I was growing up, it was Native American or American Indian. And, you know, today I'm hearing more and more indigenous or people using specific tribal affiliation. Mm -hmm. So I think it just depends. But I think uh, all of those are pretty acceptable terms. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone's going to get upset because even we talk about across Turtle Island or North America, we talk about that as Indian country. Mm -hmm. And so... Okay. Yeah, well, I think they're all, they're all okay. <laughs> yeah, very uh, useful framework. Always want to ask. Shiloh, I have really so much enjoyed our talk, and I hope I can meet you the next time I'm in Detroit. I'm there a lot. Yeah, please, please connect with me when you're here. Yeah. Love that. Okay, that was Shiloh Maples, Program Manager for Food Sovereignty and Wellness Initiatives at American Indian Health and Family Services. Thanks, Shiloh. Thank you. All right, take care. When first I came to town, they called me the Roving Jewel. Now they've changed my name and they call me Katie Cruel. Come diddle diddle day, hide little die o day. Ah, oh, that I was where I would be, then I would be where I am. Not here I am, where I must be. Hide little die o day. Ah, oh, that I was where I would be, then I would be where I am. Not here I am, where I must be. Where I would be, I cannot come diddle diddle day. Hide little die o day. And that's it for this episode. Point of Origin is a podcast from iHeartMedia and Whetstone Magazine, executive produced by Christopher Hasiotis and hosted by me, Stephen Satterfield. Special thanks to Kat Hong for editing, supervising producer Gabrielle Collins, and a very special thanks to my business partner, Whetstone co-founder Melissa Shi, who helped produce this podcast. Thanks, Mel. I hope you've enjoyed today's very special episode on rice. We'd like to thank our guest for making it possible, Barb Barton, author of Monoman, Wasan Dillard, natural fiber weaver, culture bearer, and teacher from the Little Traverse Bay Bands of Ottawa Indians, and Shiloh Maples, Program Director for American Indian Health and Family Services in Detroit. And thanks to all of you for supporting Whetstone and listening to the Point of Origin podcast. For all of the latest on all things Point of Origin, you can follow us on Instagram at Whetstone Magazine or online at whetstonemagazine.com. We'll see you next week at the Point of Origin. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. 
Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.